Go ahead and get rolling. It's good to see everybody this morning. Um, people will be coming in and coming out, and that's fine. Uh, we are continuing our series in Mark this morning, and next week we will we'll get to have communion together. It's the last Sunday of the month, and we'll actually be falling on the exact same passage that will be talking through that, so worked out great. Um, today, don't worry, we're not talking about end times like last week. If you were here last week, uh, that was great. I enjoyed getting to go through that passage with us and walk through it, but man, it was six weeks in one day, so we were glad that you guys were here. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 14. We're going to give people just a few minutes to drop kids and return, give a couple of announcements while we're doing that. A um, couple things that are coming up that are important, and you're going to hear about it again towards the end. Like, I don't know if you noticed or if you knew but several of our kids that were represented up here today were adopted or adopted through foster, things like that. We, uh, man, we love to see that within the church. I think it's one of the best physical illustrations that we can have of what the gospel looks like for God to create family where it was not. And uh, we love our families that get to participate in that. And coming up next Sunday, uh, there's going to be a lunch directly after worship uh, led by several of our families that are involved in fostering and adoption. And it's just a time. It's not asking you to commit to anything. It's not asking you to sign up or do anything like that, but it literally is just a time to listen and learn from the people that have been involved with it. So if you at any point have said to yourself or have said to God, I may want to do that, even if you're not ready, man, it would be a great day for you just to go and have lunch, sit down with people that are doing it. It may even just provide you the opportunity to pray for one of them, to partner with one of them, to buy diapers for that family or something like that. Uh, But we'd love for you to sign up. Kelly's going to share a little bit later when we have announcements, Kelly Picardi, and just talking about some of their experiences while they're there, and they'll be one of the families that'll be sitting there to share. Um, But yeah, so keep that in mind. The Burdens will be hosting that, and there'll be several other families that we've heard from that'll be involved as well. Um, And a couple other things coming up. Uh, We have a marriage uh, retreat or conference in town that uh, you can sign up for and go to. It's being hosted by uh, Brushy Creek Baptist Church in Greenville. They've got plenty of room, plenty of space. Uh, it's going to be from like 6 to 9 on Friday night and then from like 8 to noon on Saturday. So quick, brief, child care is provided. Cost is $75 per couple. You're going to pay them. If you want to go but you can't afford that, let us know. We'll be glad to take care of that for you. Um, but if you can't afford it, by all means, do that. Um, and this is not something you go to if your marriage is in trouble. That's not why you're going. This, the point of this is like preventative maintenance, okay? Let's learn. Even if you've only been married six months and you're like, man, newlywed life is awesome. Why doesn't he pick up his socks? Like if that's you, perfect place for you. If you've been married 15 years and you're like, man, married life is awesome. Why doesn't he pick up his socks? Good place for you, too. So whether you've been married five months, 15 years, 35 years, 65 years, I don't think we have 65 years in here, but it'd be a great thing for you to go to, um, and it's always good just to sit and listen and learn and learn about ways that we can refine and shape our marriage. Uh, So that's coming up. It goes out in the weekly email. You can find the link on that. If you have questions, let me know. And the last thing that I'll share while we're waiting for a few people in a few months, hopefully less, we're going to launch um, some discipleship groups. So we have community groups, and those are great. And they're an entryway into discipleship and life-on-life stuff. And this is not either or. So it's not community groups or this. But if you are interested in meeting with one to two other people, just and to do this very, very simply and succinctly, read Scripture together, learn together, support each other, pray for one another, and doing it regularly and for a set amount of time, um, I would encourage you to sign up. Even if you're already doing that with a few other people, go ahead and sign up so that we know, so that we can support you and love you in that. And we know that that happens out of community groups a lot of times, and we applaud that. Uh, But this is just one of our ways to be relationship on relationship, 
pushing and pulling each other towards Jesus. Like, that's the goal. Um, because, like, Sundays are great. And, like, this is kind of my soapbox. Sundays are awesome. Number one, not our identity. But number two, Sundays are not sufficient to make us look more and more like Jesus if that's all we do. Okay, they're just not. We need to be digging into Scripture as individuals. We need to have others pushing us and pulling us towards Jesus, calling us out on sin, allowing us to confess sin, provide that space and that time. So if you're interested in doing that, meeting like one to two times a month, six to nine month period, reading something simple like either the book of Luke or the GE Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, those kind of things. Like if you're interested in doing that, we would strongly encourage you uh, to sign up. The link, it goes out in the weekly email. It'll be on the website. It'll be on Facebook, Instagram, all those social media, media things. Um, but we'd love for you to sign up. So with all that being said, uh, we're going to jump in. Mark chapter 14, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. I'm going to pray, uh, bring my heart rate down, and, uh, and then we're going we're gonna to go. And by the way, I'm Matthew. If I didn't get to meet you, I'm super grateful that you're here. Glad you came to support your families. And if maybe you just popped in for another reason today, thank you for being our guest. I hope you got enough coffee. Uh, we love you, God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word today. Um, that is trustworthy, um, that is able to make us look more and more like Jesus um, with the help, the assistance, the aid, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, thank you so much for the fact that Christ makes us worthy and acceptable to you. And God, thank you that we can know you, be known by you, and make you known. Um, God, and as we look at your word, I pray that we do it well. I pray that we do not add anything or take anything away. Um, and God, we pray that you use it in a mighty way today. Thank you for what you've already done. Thank you for what you will continue to do. And thank you so much for loving us and making us acceptable. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So at this point, um, Jesus is really, really close to the price. And by the price, I mean the cross. I mean, he's in Jerusalem here. Um, we've kind of switched now. We're kind of changing gears to the passion narrative within Scripture. And the passion narrative is probably, like in reality, as far as dated and written, it's probably the earliest narrative that we have. You say, well, it's in the book of Mark. Yes, the book of Mark was written around AD 60. But the passion narrative, which is like the last few days of Jesus, had already been written, spoken about, and circulated uh, for 20 to 30 years already. And it was fairly common, at least within the early church. Like these things were known. And that's the reason if we go and reread the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the passion narrative is very similar in all three because this was kind of like a universal story that they were telling. They were talking about Jesus. Even, you know, 30 years post-crucifixion, uh, resurrection, like this was stuff that they spoke about frequently. Why? Because it was vastly important. As a matter of fact, eternal importance, primary importance, and so it was well known. And so once we get into chapter 14 here in Mark, uh, we began to enter into that. And so he's left the temple Pretty much his teaching time is done, and now the events will unfold that will ultimately lead to his crucifixion, and then, beautifully, his resurrection, his conquering death and sin on our behalf. And so today, we've got a literary thing that Mark has done. We've talked about it. It's called sandwiching or intercolation, in which Mark starts a story, and then he tells another story in between, and then he completes the story that he started. So it's like a sandwich. So we got two pieces of bread, then we got some meat, and that's, that's a sandwich, all right? So anyway, sorry. I love sandwiches. Man, they're so good. Especially, yeah, like, mmm. Anyway, sorry. Corned beef and pastrami, they're really good. Unless they're bad, then they're not very good. But when they're good, man, they are so good. But anyway, back to Scripture because I'm not very important. Chapter 14, verse 1, we're going to read through uh, verse 11, and then we're going to talk about what's going on. It says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Verse 3, 
And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whatever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Jesus starts this section and ends this section with the fact that the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, predominantly making up the Sanhedrin, wanted to kill Jesus. They had been wanting to do it since probably the second or third chapter of the book of Mark as we've gone through this, uh, but now they're serious. Before, they were just kind of grinding their teeth, pulling their beards, just like, ah, we're going to get you, kind of a thing. But now they're like, we're going to arrest him. We're going to kill him. But they said a couple of things. They said, we can't do it now because it was the feast time. It was the Passover time. The religious folks of, of Israel gathered together in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to, to remember the time in which God freed them from Egypt by the last plague and passed them over if they had smeared blood over their doorpost, got them out of Egypt, sent them eventually to the promised land after some disobedience and some distrust and some wandering. They got there, uh, and they celebrated that. Now is that time. It was a big deal. A lot of people were gathered together in Jerusalem, and, and a lot of those folks found Jesus very intriguing, very captivating, and very much loving. Many had been healed by him. Many were his followers. Many were his lowercase d disciples, and, and they loved him. And so the Pharisees, the scribes, they said, we can't capture him now because if we do, there could be a riot. There could be an uproar. It could be bad for us. So we'll wait. And so after they had concluded that, uh, we see that Jesus, he's in Bethany. That's kind of his home base outside of Jerusalem while he was there. And he was likely staying in the same house or with the same families during this time. And we see now that he's at a house of someone called Simon the leper. We know nothing more about Simon the leper. Uh, there are a couple of stories about anointing of Jesus within Scripture. And, and basically in Matthew and John and, and here in Mark, we have one occurrence. Uh, we have the occurrence that we see here of who it was most likely the sister of Lazarus and Martha, Mary, coming in to anoint Jesus. But then in Luke, we have another that was earlier in the ministry uh, at another Simon's house, Simon the Pharisee, and, and another display. So they are two distinctly, potentially three, but most likely two distinctly different stories. But in this case, we have familiar people. We have Simon the leper. Likely it's named uh, because he was previously a leper and Jesus had healed him. We don't know that for sure. But what we do know is that no one would have been eating in his house if he was still currently a leper. Because uh, they would have all been ceremonially unclean. They were all about to go and worship the Passover stuff. And none of them would have been able to if they ate in the house of a leper. So it was probably Simon who was previously a leper, but he was called Simon the leper. It's Very likely he was named because he was someone that was healed by Jesus. And so they were in his house, and it was he was reclining at the table. So we think of tables most of the time as chairs and seats, but for them, the tables would have been low. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a hibachi restaurant where they make it look like Japan, you know, where the, you know, the hibachi top is low and you can put your knees under. It's kind of like that, except you couldn't put your knees under. You would kind of recline on your left side, feet behind you, and every, that's, that's the position you would take to eat. And so it said that he was there eating. And we have a woman come in. Uh, if we look at Matthew and John, it's very likely that this was Mary, 
uh, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. But either way, we don't know for this sake, but it, it's, it's probably pretty likely. And she comes in and she does some odd things, or mainly one really odd thing. It says that she comes in and she takes this alabaster flask or bottle and she breaks it open and empties it over Jesus' head. So he's reclining. He's on the floor. She walks up behind him unannounced and breaks open this marble-type jar and just dumps this stuff all over his head. And it wouldn't have been thin, the consistency of like olive oil or anything like that, because those fragrant oils were cheap, but this was incredibly costly. And we'll see some descriptions of that in just a second. Um, But there's a couple things that we want to note quickly. Number one, she broke it open. She didn't intend to put it back. Like there was no way to get this back. So the things, the contents of that, she gave it wholeheartedly and entirely and permanently. And so it was intentional. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a byproduct of circumstance. She knew that he was there. Apparently she had uh, feelings or um, a bond or a reason or a rationale and motive behind what she did. And she walked in and just emptied herself out, literally and figuratively. Now, this alabaster flask of ointment, there's, there's a couple reasons or nard um, that people would have had it. Um, it was a collection or accumulation of wealth to a degree. Uh, some people would have had a small bottle because they wouldn't have had a lot of wealth. Some people would have had a big bottle because they would have been collecting and accumulating over time. But a lot of times it was collected and accumulated for burials, you know, for when someone dies because they didn't embalm back then. And so in order to preserve or, or make someone's body acceptable for burial, they would, they would empty it there. And there was that reason. But there was also the reason, too, it was like in this marble kind of a thing. And if anyone has marble countertops, you know that it's porous. You know, it's hard, but it's also very porous. It can, things can seep in and seep out, and you have to take care of marble countertops. Uh, the same thing with this flask. If it was full of this, this nard, this thick ointment, the fragrance would diffuse all the time. And it would be a reminder, like, here is this thing worth a lot of money, and you walk in my house, and you smell it. And it's a reminder. And so it wasn't necessarily a status symbol, so to speak, but it, but it was a reminder of, of what I've put into this, what the value represents, because you can smell it as soon as you enter my house or enter wherever it is. And so uh, this, this nard was made from a collection of herbs and things that came from India, which led to its great cost and its value. It wasn't something you could go and pick from your garden. Like imagine, you know, back then how hard it would have been to be in Jerusalem and then go to India to gather these things, refine them, make them into this thick, thick stuff that didn't just take a few plants, but a lot, and refine it through a process that involved fermentation and alcohol, things that would be produced, and it wasn't a short, a short time to make this. It took a lot of effort and a lot of money to acquire it. And she walks in and she dumps it over Jesus' head. And so the crowd that was there, predominantly the disciples, uh, they see it and they're like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, what, woman, what are you thinking? Like, that was, their, that was kind of their expression. Like, what are, you, what are you thinking? And it said here in this particular test, it says, there were some that said to themselves indignantly, like, gosh, what are you doing? Uh, Matthew and John kind of give us a little more information as to who it was. Matthew says the disciples were the ones that said this, the twelve John actually says, Judas actually spoke up and said some very similar words right here. But they're like, what are you doing? The amount of nard or ointment that you just dumped on his head, that's that's almost like a year's worth of salary. That's that's like a year's worth of work. You just dumped it out. What are you doing? 
You could have sold that and fed so many poor people. You could have been very religious with it right there because that's what they said. They were just blown away by the fact that the woman just didn't take the wax-sealed cork off because it could have taken some work. You could have taken the wax top off because it was sealed with wax. It was meant to be permanent, but you could have removed that and then emptied some out, smeared it, spread it around, put it back on. But she broke it, all of it, over Jesus' head. Now, a lot of people have had varying opinions as to what she was doing. A lot of people saying that she was anointing him like a king. Unlikely, not her position, not her job, not her role, um, not what she was doing. Some people say that she was preparing him for burial, which Jesus even makes a statement about that towards the end of this passage or the end of the meat of this passage. But she probably wasn't doing that either. That was from his perspective and something that he was laying out there so that people would know. So what was she doing? What was she doing? So continuing on, I just want to reread verse 5. It says, For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, 300 days wages, and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus, in verse 6, says, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? Why do you bother her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. Their objection was you could have sold this and, and given it to the poor, fed a lot of people. And Jesus' response, by the way, they did, it was an inner dialogue that they were having. It's unlikely that all the 12 spoke this out loud. Judas may have, but for them, it was inward indignation. indignation. But Jesus answers anyway, and, and he says a couple things. He's like, she did a beautiful thing for me. And then he says, you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has done what she could. Two phrases. And man, I love them. The first, she's done a beautiful thing for me. The second, she's done what she could. She's done a beautiful thing for me. She has done what she could. We have so many misunderstandings and misappropriations of what we feel that worship should be or what our following of Jesus should be that very often we don't do what we can because we feel like it's not enough. We don't do what we can because somewhere in me we don't feel like it's enough. But this woman, what she did was all that she could and Jesus looked at it and says, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Now, I believe that sanctification is going to grow us to a place that we can do and give more and more and more for the name, the cause, the glory, and the beauty of Christ. But where we are currently, whatever we have that we can give, if it's the most that we can do in the eyes of Jesus, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. We go back to that woman a couple days ago that we read about, the woman that Jesus was sitting opposite from in the temple the second layer of the temple, and she just dropped those two coins in when other people were dropping in so much. And he looked at the woman, and remember what he said. He's like, she's given more. They're like, she hasn't given more. We didn't even hear a change purse rattle, but she had because it was all that she could give. It was all that she had. Same exact response here. But this woman, she just gave a lot. But it was also all that she could give. And he looked at it, and he said, it's beautiful. What she had was enough. What she had was enough. And he also told them a couple other things within here, hidden a few things 
Uh, he said, you always have the poor with you, but me you will not. So he's letting them know, even though they thought something was coming, the tension was building, the room was changing a little bit, they probably still weren't fully on board with the fact that he was about to be crucified. He was about to die, but he took a point to remind them, you'll always have the poor with you. You can serve them any time and all the time, but me, not so much. So he gave them a reminder there, but then he continues on, and after he says she has done what she could, she's anointed my body beforehand for burial, even though that wasn't her intent, very likely, uh, he did relate it to that and remind them again. This life that's in me now, this life that you're sitting beside, this life that you're hearing, this life that you're perceiving is about to be out of my body, at least for a few days. So we reminded them. And then in verse 9, he gives them another kind of pointed reminder, and he says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so we also let them know something else. In addition to the fact that he wasn't going to be here much longer the way he was now, he also let them know that his death was coming and a burial was coming as a result. But then he gave them another pointed reminder that this thing that's occurring, this gospel, this good news that's originating from him and him alone, it's not just going to stop in Jerusalem. It's not just going to stop in Judea. It's not just going to stop in Samaria. But it is going to reach the whole world in all places at all times. And wherever it's spoken of, this woman's act will be spoken of too. So his days were coming to an end. His burial was imminent. But the gospel was going to spread like crazy. And shortly after, some people even uh, guess that Judas was so ticked off by what just occurred, this is what pushed him to go and turn Jesus over. Because Judas was a money guy. I mean, it kind of fell out of him when he died. We'll see that later, but he was also the treasurer, but apparently he might not have been very trustworthy to be the money keeper within the disciples. But some people think that his gross display or Jesus' gross display of letting someone dump 300 days of work over his head is what pushed Judas over the edge. Don't know that for sure. This was all to fulfill the plan of God. We have to acknowledge and understand that too, but it says in verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So the first piece of bread in this intercalated story was the religious leaders. They were looking for a way to arrest and kill Jesus. But they didn't know how yet. They just knew they needed to wait. But then Judas, something flipped. In the meat of the story, or somewhere in between, Judas was like a... I'm going to betray him. So he goes to these leaders, these leaders who were bent on finding a way to arrest and kill Jesus, and he says, I'll be the opportunity. I'll provide it. I'll make a way. It says they were glad. They were happy. And they said, we'll even pay you. And so he went away, thinking of a way that he could betray Jesus. A lot of times, the, the way that Mark will intercalate stories um, goes to, to prove a bigger point. In this case, I think we read it, and from a literal, a spiritual, and a knowledge perspective, I think the contrast is what is so vital. The contrast is what is so vital. You have two groups of people. You have one group of people that their whole mission right now was to kill this Jesus. They wanted him gone. They wanted him gone. They didn't just want him arrested anymore. They didn't just want him dishonored anymore. They wanted him dead. 
They wanted him dead to the point that they were willing to take the word of one of his own to have him handed over. And their original plan was, we're not going to do it during the festivals, during the festivities, during this time. But once an opportunity presented itself, they're like, man, that's out the door. We're going to do it. We're going to do it now, Passover or not. That's one hand. On the other hand, you have this woman who represents the whole of his followers at this point. They might not have known it yet, but they would. And she just wanted to give him everything she had. One group was willing to risk everything just to see him dead, but the other group, this woman being the chief at the moment, she just wanted to give all that she had. All that she had. I think to a degree, I I think we read this and we look at it, and this is not even really part of our application, but I do think it helps us understand our predicament. That, number one, we can be both of these groups at any given point in our life. We may have been both of these groups. We may have been the people that were righteously opposed, (laughs) as we would call it, to Jesus and his ways. The thought of someone fixing me because I couldn't fix myself. Maybe that was so repugnant to us. We were like, no, that's ridiculous. I don't need anyone to fix me. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. Saturday Night Live reference. Hope you picked up on it. Or maybe, maybe we're the other ones. And we're just like, man, Jesus, you've saved me. You've saved me from trying to fix myself. You've redeemed me because I couldn't do it on my own. Now I just want to give you all I got. There's that tension, but then there's the tension that we walk in a world in which we're going to meet people in both camps. And the way is narrow, the, and the gate is narrow, the way is narrow. Those who take it are few. Like the understanding is the majority of this world has no need for Jesus or feels they don't. They don't need the physician because they don't know they're sick. But then those of the way, that small, narrow way that we live so that others may know, we're all in an effort to just say, thank you, Jesus, for doing what you've done that I could not. I know I can't repay you, but I'd really like to try. We walk in this tension. We live in this tension. We're a people of this tension. Interesting story. And I think the story kind of begs the question, like, what do we do? I think the first, and this is what this woman teaches us, and and we need to cling to it, hold on to it, repeat it, not as a mantra, but as an understanding of just that Jesus is worthy. Entirely worthy. Entirely, totally, unbelievably worthy. Well, some people were disgusted at what she did and thought it could have been put to a far better use. Jesus' response was, no, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's exactly what she could do, and that's what she did. And as a result, it's amazing. Don't bother her. We understand that Jesus is worthy. And if we understand he's worthy, it kind of begs the question, well, what is he worthy of? Because that's the, that's the elephant in the room. Okay, he's worthy. That's great. Yeah, I'll, I'll write that down. I'll do a bumper sticker. But what does that mean? What is he worthy of? Let me give you the short answer. The short answer. It starts with every. It ends with thing. <laughs> Everything. Everything. You're like, you can't leave me with that. No, I can. I can, but I can start with that too. But he is. He's literally worthy of everything. But like we talked about a few weeks ago, like 
to put that in front of us like as a trajectory and as a, a plan to say, Jesus, I'm going to give you everything. Like if we look at the expanse of our life, maybe for a lot of us, we're like, I can't even wrap my mind around what that looks like. I can't. Like I don't even know what everything is. And I, I don't, I, yes, you're worthy. You're worthy of everything. But what, what does that even mean? And like we talked about a few weeks ago, like if we say that, God, I want to give you all that I have, because that story about the woman, it was about money, but it was about more. And we gave just kind of this simple idea of just take it like one day at a time. I get up tomorrow and I say, God, today, this day, it's yours. Wherever I go, whatever I think, whatever I say, whatever I feel, whatever my motivations are, I want them to be yours. So take this day, make it yours, do whatever you want. And then at the end of the day, we, we thank him for that. So a simple process. And so for us, again, within this idea of everything, yes, we do take it one day at a time like we talked about a few weeks ago, but I do want to give us just a, a small list of what's encompassed in that everything. Because that's what the woman was doing. Like she gave all that she could in that moment. Jesus said it was beautiful. So for us, what does that mean? I, I think it begins with uh, we give Jesus our minds. We give him our minds. God's a very logical creator. Like if we go to the creation account and see the way that God made things, he made things with order. Gravity's always the same. The rotation of the earth, always the same. The, the, the spinning and the, the, the circulating of the earth around the sun, always the same. We can set our clocks by them. As a matter of fact, we do. God is orderly. He creates in an orderly fashion, and he wants us to be orderly in our process, our thought, our minds. God intends for us to use our minds in an attempt to worship him. And so we give him our minds. But our minds can be corrupt. They can. Our minds can be totally corrupt because that's what sin does. It gets in, it takes root, it makes a harbor of our hearts, and it disseminates through the rest of us to corrupt every single part, even though there's a great fingerprint of God the way that he made us because of our ability to rationale and, and use rationale and, and thought and processes. So we give God our minds. Romans 12, 1 and 2 beautiful passage that Paul's writing to the, the people of Rome. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, thusia, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In this particular place here, he's like, look, we are all called to worship. And one way in, in which that begins is we don't let the world shape us, but we allow God to shape us. And the way that he does that is by the changing, the renewal, the making new of our minds, our brain matter, the part of us that does our thinking. And so while this seems very logical and process-driven, the changing and the renewal of our mind is very much spiritual. It's very much spiritual. If we seek to understand what salvation is just using our mind but not allowing the Holy Spirit to change it and radically wreck it and reshape it, we will never comprehend the length, the breadth, the width of the grace of God. It will not happen. But only by the infection and our infatuation with the Holy Spirit and his work that is in us that's made possible through the work of Jesus by grace through faith can that happen. And so it takes our part by saying, God, take my mind and make it yours. Let me think the way you desire for me to think. Let me process the way you desire for me to process. Let me understand the things that you desire for me to understand. So it's not so much directly related to our labor, which it will be in just a moment, but predominantly and primarily it starts with the work of God in our own heads. God, change my mind and let it be worship-driven. 
Let it be Christ-centric. Let it be Holy Spirit-initiated. Change my mind. Let me think the way you want me to think. Let me understand the things you want me to understand. I remember sitting as a sophomore in high school in a chemistry class, a professor that, um, that I just, man, I thought he was great. Such a neat, uh, magnetic personality. First name, Kirby. You don't meet a whole lot of first name, Kirby's. Last name, yes, but first name, not many. Um, but I remember him telling us one day why he was atheistic by choice. And he basically said, I've read the whole Bible many times. Doesn't make sense. He's exactly right. Like apart from God indwelling me, changing my mind, this redemptive story is crazy. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of eternal life for those who believe. The work of God in me is he allows me to understand, comprehend, make sense of this ridiculous economy that he sets up that we would never engineer, but he does because he's good and he's holy and he desires to make us right because we can't do it on our own. My heart broke for my professor and my teacher that day. God has to change our minds, but we have to give him our minds. And one way that we do that is we actually commit to learn. We're like, God, take my mind, change my mind. But there is some labor involved with that. Yes, he begins this work. He continues this work. But unless we actually spend time getting to know him through his primary method, which is Scripture, we're only committing partway. We're only doing part. And so, yes, God, change my mind, but I'm not going to do anything to partner with you in this. That doesn't work. He wants to change our mind from exposure to truth, understanding of this truth, putting the puzzle pieces together. That's the way that I view like theology with us or the, the knowledge of God, understanding who he is. Like this Bible in its totality is like a large puzzle board and each piece that we read is a piece on that puzzle. The more we know, the more we understand, the better we are at putting the piece where it belongs. And at the end, we have this beautiful full picture of who God really is, to be honest, and we'll never have it until his return. But in the meantime, we can start placing those pieces one by one so that we get a better idea and understanding as to who God is. And included in that picture is who I am as well and who you are. And so, yes, God, change my mind, but allow me to know you, understand who you are, learn more through your word. So we do that as we gather here on Sundays. We do that as we gather in community groups. We do that as, as daily, hopefully, or as close to daily as possible. We spend time pursuing God through his scripture, just asking God, show me something today that I need to know about you, that I need to know about me, that I need to let go of, either way, all of the above. But we also do it in those other areas, maybe with one to two other people. Be a great opportunity. So those discipleship groups, they're not by accident. They are by product who we are and how we function as a church family. Gather with other people. Make the sacrifice. Make the time. Say, I do need to know more. I do need to understand more. I do need to confess more. Gather with one to two other people. Once to twice a month. I said once. I think I did. Sorry. That was my grandmother in me. Once and twice. But once or twice a month. Do that. So he needs our minds. The second, I'm, I'm going to move. The second is uh, we can give him our gifts. Our gifts, not the ones wrapped with a bow, but like the spiritual gifts, the ones that he gives us. You're like, wait, he gives those to me. What do you mean I give those back? Well, if we flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 4, it says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. 
There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Skipping down to verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. We give those gifts back to God, the things that he grants us. These are not talents. These are not skills. These are things that are translated, given to us by the Spirit at our time of regeneration and further beyond that so that it may be for the good, the common good of all. Speaking of the one another's, the church. He gives us the gift of teaching. He gives us the gift of vulnerabilities. There's, there's tons of them. They're all listed right there between 7 and 11. You can read through those. If we read those today, I would stay here too long. You go. You read. Tons of different gifts. And in other places in Scripture, God gives us those for the betterment of the family of God, each of us, according to the will of God and the needs of the family. And so he gives them to us, and then after he does and we realize them, we see them, we say, God, use them however you want, even if it costs me. Let me give what I can, and I know that you'll find it beautiful. Let me give what I can, and I know that you'll find it beautiful. That even includes our gifts, the things that he gave us for his glory, his good, but for the betterment of the family. If you need help figuring out what those are, man, we can help you with that. We even have tests. It's amazing. They might not be 100% accurate, but it's a good starting place. If you've never done like a spiritual gifts inventory, man, let us know. We'd love to help you with that. Just to figure out how has God gifted you as a result of the grace by which he has bestowed through our knowledge and understanding of, the, of Jesus, what has he given us for the betterment of the family? We give him our gifts. The third, really quickly, we give him our relationships. We give him our relationships in their totality. Our relationships. Like one thing that we have felt driven to be as a church is, uh, man, this is not our identity, what we do on Sundays. This is something we get to do, and it's something fun that we get to do, and it's vital that we get to do it, gather together, worship together. There's beauty in singing from the bottoms of our hearts about the goodness of God. There's beauty in circling the wagons around, wagons around spiritual truth only from Scripture, and we're only going to teach from the Bible. If we show up and we're teaching from anything else, I would encourage you to walk out and never come back, but we're only going to do that. Um, but, but, like I told someone this morning, and I ask everybody that walks in that I don't know, who do you know? How did you find us? Because it's highly unlikely. Maybe a few of you found us by finding us online. That's great. That's impressive. That's actually a bit unbelievable at times. We're glad that you're here. But everyone else, there's an existing relationship for the reason that you're here today. And those relationships are vital. We have to push and pull each other towards Jesus. And it, and it happens best, it happens in its most beautiful fashion when it's face-to-face, voice-to-voice, heart-to-heart. Take all those relationships that God has given us uh, for the betterment of each one of us, for the sanctification of each one of us to grow in our knowledge and maturity in Jesus, but also so that others may know him, period, through relationships. In the United States, we have relied on event-driven evangelism for so long The church has lost a great deal of credibility. But what Jesus intended from the very beginning is that the gospel be passed from person to person. It was a movement. It was a movement, not an event. God didn't intend for the gospel to be an event-driven message. He intended it for it to be a family talking to other people who would become family by the grace and mercy on display of Jesus, person 
to person. Acts 2, we see that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And as it was, a, it was a result of people looking in, seeing the way the church loved each other, the way that if any had need, it would be given and met to them, the way that they met in homes and broke bread together, shared hope with each other, devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings daily. Not event-driven, people-driven, relationship-driven. God's given us those relationships so that, A, we can look more like Jesus. So that the person that you know that loves Jesus, that's a little bit further down the road than you in their walk with Christ, can invest in you the same way they were invested in, so that you can grow to know Christ better from their experience based on what God has done. But it also is so that others can grow. Because what God's done in you, he wants to flip that hourglass over in someone else. That's the reason we we walk around with hourglasses on our shirts. Because what God has poured in me, we want to turn it over and pour it into someone else. But that only happens not by accident, but by intentional, sacrificial intent. God, take my relationships, use them to grow me, use them to grow others, use them to save people. Through what God's done in me, through what God's done in someone else, we give him those relationships. Shape you, they shape others. The last, and this will be a little bit biblically cliche, but I'm going to say it anyway. We give him our three T's. Our three T's. Our time, our talents, and our treasures. Our time, our talents, and our treasures. I think the two most valuable commodities that we have in our life, money's not one of them. It's our relationships and then our time. Those are the two most valuable commodities that we will ever have our time and our relationships. And we actually have to give those back to God so that he'll use them. He's going to do what he will, but there needs to be a part in me that releases them, says, God, hey, take my relationships. Use them to make me look more like Jesus. Use them to make other people look more like Jesus. Use those. But then our time, we only have a limited supply and we'll never get it back. But in the meantime, we want God to take every minute that we have, use it for his glory, his good, his purpose, his kingdom, his plan, and not mine. Now, if we say, I'm going to mark every day on the calendar for the rest of my life that I'm going to give him all my time, that seems a little bit hard. But one day at a time, we can do. One day at a time, we can do. With the understanding, we're going to do it tomorrow, too. But it starts with the day that you're in. God, take this time, all 24 hours of it. Use it however you want. I can sleep during that time. That's okay. But take it. Use it for however you want. Our time. Our talents, those are the things that we have that that are not as a result of our regeneration, but the ways that we were born. Man, a talented group of people God has gathered together and called origins. Amazingly talented group of people. Amazingly talented. Really good at making babies, too, apparently. I'm just saying. We got five more on the way, at least. And I'd say there's a sixth. We just don't know it yet. We can call that a talent. Growing the family from within, passing on the beauty of the gospel from one parent to a child. Yeah, there's that, but other talents. What are your talents? Give them to God. Use them however you want. Maybe you're great at cornhole. I don't know how he can use that, but maybe he can. God's amazing. He's he's amazing. He's a talent wizard. He can do whatever he wants. But as you recognize them, God, take them, use them, do whatever you want. Same way of giving him every hour. We give him all those things. And then treasures, the third T. Yep, treasures are exactly what you think they are. They're money and things that we hold dear. For this woman, it was this big old jar almost a year's salary. She did a beautiful thing because it's all that she could do. And she just said, Jesus, I worship you. I give it to you, knowing that I'll never get it back. 
I won't be able to put it back in the jar because the jar is broken. It can't hold anything anymore. But Jesus, you're worthy. You're worthy. When you find places in which God directs you to give your treasure, understand you're not giving it to get a return. You're giving it because he's worthy. You're giving it because he's worthy. More worthy than the poor. And you say, well, that's crazy. Yeah, well, the poor are always with us. We can serve them whenever we want. And we should. Jesus didn't contradict that. But in the moment, in this place, her treasure was placed in the right spot on Jesus' head. Where does your treasure need to go? Where does my treasure need to go? It needs to go to God. Let him do with it whatever he wants. And all of these things take us doing something that's not easy. It takes us letting go of the things that we hold dear to understand that Jesus is better. You want these things? Use these things. They're yours anyway. Thanks for letting me watch them for a while. Let me pray. God, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you so much for Jesus. God, thank you that he is worthy. Worthy of everything, but even the parts of everything too. I pray that we would see the beauty in this woman's actions and the reason that they would be spoken of for years, centuries, millennia to come. Because it did illustrate that you're worthy of everything that we have. Whether it's financial, whether it's relational, whether it's time, whether it's talents, whether it's the gifts that you give us, whatever it may be, you're worthy of those things. Direct us on where to put them, how to use them best for your glory and your goodness. And thank you, God, that we're not looking for a return in our investment, but we're just grateful that you're worthy to take them. Move us in that direction. Give us that one day at a time mentality that each day we start and we say, God, take this, make it yours. I'm giving it to you. Thanks for giving it to me first, but use it however you want however you want, for your glory, for your plans, and not mine. Thank you for loving us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. In just a moment, Kelly.